welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm joined this week by Olka Hansen. She is the founding partner of Educating Potential and the author of the new book, The Future of Smart. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on the future of smart and the future of education and kind of where we've been and where we've come from. Um, So I mentioned you're the founding partner of Educating Potential, and your career has been spent largely working with educational foundations, organizations that consult in education and starting out as a school teacher. So what has been the biggest challenge uh, in education that you see? Wow, small question to start with, right? Um, We like to start small. (laughs) I think I would phrase it, and I know everyone has heard folks talking about the factory model of education, but I think the biggest challenge that I've seen in the 20 years that I've been in the field is that we don't fully understand the system that we're stuck inside of. In other words, we talk about the factory model, but I don't think we've ever quite gotten underneath to the assumptions and the values that undergird the factory model system. And so what I've seen over the last 20 years, 30 years, are these efforts to improve education, but doing it in a way that's kind of bolting on solutions onto a fundamentally problematic approach, right? Which is the conventional uh, method of education that was about memorizing information. It was about molding children into these kind of social and economic units that people were trying to cultivate in the 1700s. And we like to think that we've moved really far away from that, but I would argue that we really haven't and that 90 to 95% of the efforts that we're making are still these kind of bolt-on solutions as opposed to something really transformative that's starting with, with foundationally different assumptions about who young people are, what they're capable of, what the purpose of education is, you know, all those kind of grounding questions out of which I think emerge very different types of learning experiences and learning environments. Yeah. So that was a really small answer to start with, too. It was. It was. (laughs) So we can just go wherever we want. (laughs) So we look, I I hear a lot of people talking about the factory model of education and the idea being that, you know, we created education to mass educate people to go to work essentially in the factories and be factory workers. And so we were creating one type of worker to do one type of job. But you mentioned the underlying, you know, issues and the underlying values with that. And I'd love to hear more of your perspective about that. Where were we and what were those values and how has that changed over time? Yeah. Um, so I'm once again going to go into the realm of the really small, but this is this is a large part of what I spent the kind of first five to seven years of my career and research on. But, you know, before about the 1500s and 1600s in Europe, Children were educated inside of their families, inside of their communities, right? You learned what you needed to learn to be a member of a family, of a community, to survive, to contribute, right, to belong. And around the 1500s, 1600s, we had this really big change in Western society and Western culture, right? It was the scientific revolution. It was a time when human beings began to think about the fact that if we 
understood the world, we could control the world. And it started in science. And a lot of those assumptions went into founding the social sciences, right? This idea that if we could just deconstruct society down to its basic units, which were people, we could actually start to build systems and manipulate the systems in the way that we wanted. And I don't mean manipulate in a bad way, but kind of create the systems that we wanted. And so when we think about the factory model, I think it's more than just preparing young people for factory work. It actually, the factory model was the industrial model put into this social system of education where you kind of broke knowledge down into these units, content units. You thought about efficiency of delivery. You thought about the end product and sort of measuring it in a quantifiable way. You thought about judging students and teachers based on those quantifiable outcomes, right? There's a whole bunch of kind of values that sit inside of the factory model. And you decontextualized children from the world so that knowledge happened now inside of this building instead of inside the context of life. And so this has been, right, those values that undergirded the basic structure of school, this thing that we think about, those are the values that I talk about when I say we haven't really gotten underneath the root of that. Because if we were to try and shift back into what education and learning have often been, we would sort of go to, and I know you you talked about my TED Talk, but kind of these three R's of relationship, of relevance, and of reintegrating young people and learning back into life and back into communities. And that, I would say, is something that relatively few schools are sort of starting with in terms of foundational values and building up from there. Yeah. I'm thinking through kind of how, you know, the scientific revolution and what that meant for education and bringing education like into a school and a place and looking at, you know, our current situation now where education has been out of school for so many people for the last year and trying to fuse that idea of education being not just a building that you go to that's separate from life. Um, And I love what you said about, you know, kind of commoditizing humans, because I think a lot of times as educators and as schools, we look at students as numbers, not as individual people. And so I think that's one of those value systems that needs to change as we're looking towards the future is that it's not an efficiency of how do we shove as much information into these little receptors as we possibly can, but how do we help these actual little humans become the best people they can be? Um, But there's also a great necessity for school to actually be a place. (laughs) And we've seen that it's, it's not just what, what kids want to become or what problem they want to solve in the world, but also, you know, that childcare setting of school as well. No, there's something really important. I don't think, right, sometimes I think we throw out everything. We sort of go, okay, well, we want to change it, so we're going to throw out everything. I think there is something really valuable to the idea that young people come together with other young people of different ages with adults who are not their parents, right, and sort of learn. I think the question is, can we make our learning environments porous so that young people can go out into the world, the world can come in. Like I could conceive of a future of education, right, where people who retired were not seen as people who had nothing to offer, that they could actually be really amazing guides to young people in terms of their learning and their education. Um, You could take people who couldn't be there full time, but were part-time guides and sort of had 
relationships with young people. So I don't, I don't think in any way that we're trying to get rid of school. And I think you're right. The pandemic has broken open for a lot of people what I think a lot of educators already knew, which was school is about so much more than just content knowledge. It's a place of safety. It's a place where many students go and, and have their only meals. Um, it's the place where they have the relationships, right, in their lives that are stable and constant. So in no way am I suggesting that we want to get rid of school. And in fact, some of the most amazing programs that I've seen are housed in buildings. They do have a center for young people to come into. And of course, all of this changes um, based on the age of a student, right? So what you can do with a five and six-year-old looks really different than what you can do with a 15 and 16-year-old in terms of how they go out into the world and how they become part of their community and do their learning outside the walls of the school. Yeah. So you also mentioned your three R's with relationship and relevance and reintegration. And so I'd love to hear more about that. And you talked a little bit about kind of building relationships, whether it's between folks who are retired and bringing them back in or how to build relationships within a community. Let's kind of talk a little bit more about how do we do that? How do we build relationships within a community? How do we create that structure? And how do we kind of recreate the underlying values for schools to to really make that possible and not only possible, but to make it a priority? Well, in some ways, I think, well, let me back up for a second, right? So when we think about our conventional schools, right, there are places where we decided that the primary job and the primary work to be done there was, to your point, pouring knowledge into these empty vessels and then putting them back out. And yes, there was some social kind of emotional work that went on there, but it was very much in service of can you be efficient in your learning and your learning delivery. And then we had sort of efforts to kind of say, we have to do whole child, we have to reform on that system, where we started to add back in social and emotional elements and relational elements. But my observation is that in many of these schools, it is a functional kind of decision to do that. So in other words, I know my students so that I can help them to you know, care about the work that they're doing, or I know my students so that they will listen to me and behave better in class, or I kind of get relationships between students so that they're not bullying each other. And that's perfectly fine. But there's a third way to do that, where you really start with the idea that we're human beings. We are social beings. We're relational beings. We become ourselves in the context of our relationships with other people, and we form our communities together, right, in inside and between those relationships. And so the schools that I've seen that kind of do this, this work really differently, this kind of transformed human-centered approach to education, like the relationships in those schools are the foundational building block of everything that they do. And it's done for the purpose of kind of being human together and building a community together. And that's done between the adults and the young people. It's done between the young people. It's done between adults and adults. And those relationships then extend out into the community, which is I am part of the community. The community shapes me. And so all of that right becomes the, the foundation of the work. And when I say it becomes the foundation of the work in many of these schools, right, the first week, two weeks, month is all about opportunities to be together, to get to know each other, for young people to get to know themselves. And then from there, you move into the work of the other parts of learning. And that's where this idea of relevance comes in. Um, we, we worry so much about young people, learning loss, about um, you know the fact that they're disengaged. Well, human beings are learners, 
by nature. We're born learning. During the pandemic, I think many of us as parents have seen our kids kind of be curious and learn whatever it is that they're learning, learning to play Minecraft, learning to cook, learning to entertain themselves, learning to garden. So I think as human beings, we are interested in and we learn about the things that seem important to us. And so these schools really kind of think about young people and their developmental trajectory. And they say, look, young children between the ages of about zero and eight, they're super curious about just about everything because they don't know anything. I'm an elementary school teacher. And one of the things I say is I can connect anything to anything else because knowledge is all interconnected. I don't care if I start with dinosaurs or I start with cooking or I start with my little pony, right? I can sort of figure out a way to teach numeracy and to teach literacy and to teach history and to teach science through those things. And so these schools really think about who is a young person? What are their interests, their passions? Where are they in life? Where do they live? Who is their family? And in what ways do we start learning through an entry point that's relevant to that young person and is part of the context of their life or part of the context of the things that they want to learn? And then they sort of reintegrate in the sense of instead of pulling the child out of the world and kind of saying, we're putting you into school to do this learning, right? Things are relevant because they are reintegrated back into the lives of young people. Mm -hmm. And so they're done through authentic projects, through opportunities to contribute to community challenges, to things that young people see out in the world and go, I want to be a part of the solution. I think one of the saddest things to see is young people becoming disengaged because you've never seen like an unexcited toddler or an unexcited four or five-year-old, right? They're enthusiastic about everything. And I think the fact that we see so many young people being less engaged and being sort of apathetic or feeling apathetic is really more an indictment of us as adults, right? I think, and what we do to them that kind of puts out that light. So I'll pause there. Sorry, because that was a lot. (laughs) No, that was great. I mean, I think a big part of what you're describing is just creating that feeling of belonging and of ownership of something. Like I I have control of these relationships. I have all of these people that I can turn to. I'm not alone and isolated, but I belong to a place and to a system and to a group and to, you know, to a classroom and to a community. And it's something that I think most elementary schools cover when they talk about citizenship and like their roles in the community. And we learn about that, at least on a very superficial level in most schools. And it sounds like what you are describing is really not only learning about it, but really doing it and really becoming a part of the community and really building those relationships and really understanding who each of us are in time and space and reality and our family and our classroom and our community and our neighborhood and you know all of those other pieces that we belong to. And when we can draw that all together, then students really feel like they belong, like they're a part of something. Um, yeah. And it's not just a place where we're trying to give them information, but it's actually a place where they can learn. Because that was another thing you brought up is that as humans, we're always learning. Like We really can't stop learning. It's really hard to stop learning. And what we've seen through the pandemic is that kids are figuring out what they want to learn. And hopefully they have the time to actually do that and dive into it now. I know in our family, my son has decided he wants to learn all about Pokemon Go. So we've been doing family walks around the neighborhood, catching Pokemon and battling each other. And 
I've become the parent that I've been judging for the last 10 years going, your kids should be looking at the trees and the birds and the nature. And yeah, and now my kids are in devices, but they're together and they're playing and they're communicating and they're outside and, and all of these things are, are good. And that's what they want to do. And they're excited about it. And my daughter wanted a new toy in the backyard. So she built a seesaw over the summer last year. That's amazing. It really is amazing what they can do. Yeah, I think we sort of, words are hard, right? Because we use the same words and we think we're saying the same thing. But there are ways in which, right, when we say project-based or we say kind of allowing kids to follow their passions, right? it can look really, really different in different places. Like I've seen places where project-based means the teacher comes out and says, okay, everyone, we're doing this project. And they've put together some really artificial project, which they hope is interesting and hope is engaging. But the kids are like, well, this really doesn't have anything to do with anything that I care about. And then there are other places when they talk about project-based learning, they really have started with young people and said, okay, what are you interested in? Let's pose a big question. And we don't exactly know what it looked like, but we're going to learn by doing. And I think that's a really critical point. And I think particularly at this moment in our society, I've been thinking a lot about this notion of belonging and community and kind of the fabric of communities. And you learn to do these things. You learn to belong. You learn to be in community and in relationship with other people by doing it, right? Not by talking about it, not by reading about civics, not reading about elections, not reading about, you know, kind of people who did good. You become these things by doing them. And I think, you know, it's unfortunate, but I think we've gotten to the point where we're so focused on coverage. And oftentimes coverage is about kind of content, knowledge. Sometimes it's about skills and dispositions, but we're so focused on sort of making sure that we do all of this, that we rush through the process of letting young people really just kind of experience it and experience the messiness and the uncertainty and the the beauty, right, of actually learning and questioning and and figuring out something and sometimes failing, right? And then having to get themselves back up and then start all over again. And yet those are the things that we know, certainly as a parent, those are the things that I want more than anything for my children. And when I think about the future of SMART, right, that term for me, it it is not about knowledge. It is about young people having deeply human capabilities, um, right, the ability to persevere, the ability to grapple with complex challenges that don't have simple algorithmic solutions, (laughs) the ability to work with people who are different, who see the world in different ways and together kind of address these amazingly huge challenges and opportunities that the world is presenting to us. And so I think we've got to sort of step back for a minute and instead of letting kind of what's always been drive us, really kind of think through, okay, so what are the things we need to stop doing in order to make time for the things that we should be doing, right? And and that our children need to be doing. Yeah, I feel like hearing you describe project-based learning and thinking of where we are as a school, because I run a small Mm -hmm. elementary school, and one of our graduate standards is influencing action. So how do we take what we learn in the school and our skills and knowledge and use that to influence action in the world around us, You know, building those relationships, working within the community, and whatever that may look like. But I feel like 
what you're describing and what you're talking about, that we've just been given a challenge to like level up what we're doing <laughs> and, and give our students, you know, more opportunity to build those relationships and more opportunity to take more control of their project and just more opportunity for that to get really messy. And, you know, in a very literal sense, my school is a disaster right now because the kids are inventing inventions and they're inventing creatures and they're building and they're creating. But what does that you know, when we take that to the next level and take that out into the world, what does that look like? And how do we build those relationships with our creations, if you will? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's super interesting. I think everyone says like, doesn't it take longer, right? To kind of do this type of learning where it's open and fluid and young people are kind of doing more of the work. And my answer has always been that we often see young people not as resources in our schools. We see them still as like the recipients of adult ability and adult mm -hmm. capability. And I think if we could start to see them as the engines of learning in different ways than adults, certainly, right? There are things we know that they don't yet know, but there are things that kids know how to do and the way they see the world that we've sometimes forgotten how to do. So I think if we can see them as resources inside of our learning environments, all of a sudden, right, the resource scarcity mentality of like, well, we don't have time or we don't have enough adults or we don't have goes away. Um, you know, you go into some class. I've gone into elementary schools where there'll be 35 kids in a class and it's not chaotic and it's not crazy because the kids are teachers of each other. Mm -hmm. and of themselves and they are managing their learning and the the trick right was that the adults had to take the time to be able to make visible to young people okay so what does it mean for you to own your learning and to organize your learning to learn how to teach and to work with other people but once they've done that the amount that can be done without adult intervention is actually pretty phenomenal and the kids understanding then of themselves and their self-confidence and their ability to believe in their own ideas and believe that they can do things just shifts dramatically as well when we see them as capable little beings, not receptacles of knowledge. <laughs> right. And, and like I said, I mean, you're a mother, I'm a mother. I look back sometimes and I'm I'm sad, right? Because inadvertently, I think... I took two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds, and I helped make them less confident in their ability. Um, and I think so. So part of it is how do we let them hold on to their ability that they can do anything um, and they can be part of something, as opposed to what I think we sometimes do, which is, and you know, this is not about any one school, but I think as society, we have this like funny thing. I was talking to somebody about midlife crises. I'm 45 now. And um, it seems okay that everyone gets to hit a point in their life where they're like, man, you know, there's just, I'm not fulfilled and I don't know who I am or I don't have, you know, enough of a sense of agency. And then we're allowed to kind of fall apart a little bit and recreate our lives as opposed to saying, actually, the foundation of who we are from the time we're born through the time that we become young adults who are going out in the world as independent beings should be the developing of that foundation, the developing of my sense of self, the developing of a sense of my own capabilities and humility to ask questions and learn and grow, right? And then you spend the rest of your life building on that foundation to kind of contribute and to do what it is that you want to do in the world um, and to shape the world. And I sort of think we've got it a little bit backwards where I think most people leave school thinking about all the ways that they're not capable and all the things they don't know how to do 
because that was what we spent 12 years showing them or reminding them about. That's true. It's interesting because I often talk when I do information nights and talk to people about elementary school, I talk about us being the foundation of of life and how exciting it is that we get to build little people and we get to help them to have all of these new experiences because as you said earlier, like from birth to eight or so, it it is, everything is so new because there's so many things that kids are seeing for the first time and we get to be a part of that and sharing that and creating that. And one of the things I say about being a parent, I'm sure I did lots of things when my kids were two, three, and four that I probably shouldn't have, but I, I look at it as, you know, we all get to screw up our kids in our own special way. So That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what we do, there will be something that they blame us for later. And that's uniquely ours. And that's part of who they are. <laughs> and it'll be okay. It will be okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think human development is one of these areas that we that we sort of left out of school. And again, when you think about the history of school, right, nobody knew about human development. Nobody, we sort of thought about children as miniature adults, right, who then grew up, they were bigger, but they were essentially adults. And I think we have learned so much in the last 15 to 20 years about human development, both in terms of our emotional and social development, our brains, how they change, right, the kind of idea that you've got this hugely formative period from kind of birth to four or five. And then that happens again in in early adolescence, so that middle school and early high school are actually super important periods. And I think the more we can learn about and attend to that kind of unfolding of human beings and really think about how are we using the moments, these kind of sensitive Mm -hmm. periods of development, these periods when we're sort of primed to engage with the world in certain ways, to learn about the world in certain ways, to learn about ourselves in certain ways. How do we build educational experiences that really reflect that progressively over time so that ideally, right, in middle school, Honestly, you probably wouldn't be worrying too much about knowledge. What you would be doing is kind of helping young people have opportunities to really develop a sense of belonging with with friends and other adults. You would be giving them the opportunity to take risk in healthy ways. You would be giving them opportunities to be out in the world, kind of working and contributing. And we're so misaligned in terms of how we've currently structured things. And I think my observation when I went to shadow my old teachers was that so many teachers, once they've been in their field for a while, they start to understand these and they've started to figure out, okay, so this is this is what I do as a third grade teacher, as a fifth or an eighth grade teacher. Um, and it's really hard because we're asking them to fight against a much bigger system that doesn't heed those human needs. So that is for sure, I think, a challenge to all of us to think about how we would change our standards, how we would change our notions of success, our definitions of success, you know, if we were to step back and really think about what we know about human beings. Well, I think you've given us some really great examples and ideas of what that might look like, you know, if we were going to reimagine and redesign the entire educational system, starting from the values and laying out the day and the flow of, you know, early elementary and then, you know, where it's belonging and then maybe more knowledge and then belonging and more knowledge as we go through the developmental kind of ebb and flow of growing up and, and when our brain develops and when we, you know, connect best versus learn best throughout life. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of different things to talk about and look at that way. And you've given some great examples and ideas about that. And I know you have a new book coming out, um, The Future of Smart. 
And I'm going to guess that some of this is in there, <laughs> but I'd love to give you a few minutes to just kind of share, you know, what, what is the vision of the future of smart? You know, wh- where does that come from? Um, so you're right. Um, the, uh, the first thing I talked about that really, really small kind of topic um, of the history of where we got, where we came from, but the book is really, is trying to step back. It's saying we're at a moment, right? We are at a moment where there's an opening and where I think there is much broader recognition than there's ever been before, that the system that we have is not in line with the world that we live in. And it's certainly not in line with the, the future that our children are going to be inheriting. And it's really hard to change something or to make something better if you don't fundamentally understand why it's not going well. Um, and so the first part of the book is the history. It is a kind of summary of what was this shift that happened to us in the West that led to a lot of things. And to me, a lot of the ideas are related not only to education, but a lot of the conversations we're having right now about our social systems, our communities, our civic fabric, right, all of that. And then it moves into a framework to understand kind of the difference between kind of conventional schools, which is the kind of factory model schools, all of the efforts to try and bolt on initiatives to fix the things that we know didn't work so that you end up having schools that have you know, 25 different initiatives that rotate every three years with a new principle where everybody's exhausted and frankly, nothing's being done well to the kind of third bucket of school, which is what I think of as human-centered liberatory, right? Where they're starting out of a different set of values, a different set of understanding of the purpose of education and who young people are. And then it really lays out sort of what it takes to get from here to there, because I don't think it's a linear shift. I think we actually have to be working to create space for new systems and structures that support that kind of human-centered liberatory approach, because right now all of our systems are geared towards this old way of doing things. And so we've got to rethink everything from how we think about our curriculum to how we think about assessment to how we think about accountability. And that is particularly true Right in the public system, I think your school is an amazing example of the ways in which we're able to craft something different outside of the public system. But if we're really, you know, wanting every young person to be prepared for the world that we know is coming, we've got to be able to do it. And I don't like to think of it as mass education, but we need to be able to do it in the public sphere um, so that everyone has access to it. No, I agree. It needs to be done on a large scale. And that was you know, part of our project and part of our experiment is to show how this can work. And then how do we take it to a bigger level? How do we share it with other people? How do we educate others? How do we, you know, make our little ripple make a larger wave? Um, And I know there, we're not alone. I know there are a lot of schools and a lot of educators kind of working on that as well. And how do we make our whole education system more student-centered and more human-friendly? Yeah. Well, and I think one of the hopes of the book actually is to give a different framework and language, right? Your school is one model. You think about Montessori schools. I think about the workshop school and the blue school and big picture learning schools. So there are all these schools that have different names and slightly different models, but I actually think you all are up to the same work, um, right? And this idea of sticks in a bundle, like because everyone sees themselves as singular, um, it's really hard to learn from each other and to advocate for the things that we need collectively to do this work at a, at a bigger scale. And so it's partly about being able to see each other and to, to see each other so that we can see that we're kind of partners in the work and that there's a lot we can learn from each other, even though the specifics of our models are different. I absolutely agree. 
I, I see it as, you know, the more different models we can get, I think it's great for the general, you know, larger picture of innovation and education. But then how do we all work together and share and collaborate and, and move, move that innovation forward together is really important. You know, I think it's probably the first time, I think as parents, it's really hard for us to imagine that what's going to be best for our children is something that is so different from our own experience. And I think we're probably raising kids sort of in our age, uh, the age band of our kids between kind of third and sixth, seventh, eighth grade, where the kind of path that we were walking is crumbling, right? As, as, we, as it sort of comes toward us because it's not there anymore. And so the safest and the best thing to do for our children is to actually put them on a very different path. Um, and that's scary as a parent, but I also think it's hugely necessary if we're going to sort of prepare them with the skills and the dispositions that they need to thrive. Yeah, it's super scary as a parent, super scary as a society as we yeah. shift into something new and different. We have to be able to change as adults, right? We can't do this work at scale until we as adults learn how to be in the work differently. Um, so it's not only about doing education differently. I think it's about being in the work of education differently. And that, I think, is a whole different kind of conversation about what it takes to get there. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think we could easily spend probably at least another 30 to 60 minutes talking about that. <laughs> But I think that'll be a conversation for another day. But I am excited to read your book when it comes out. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your ideas and your time today. This has been wonderful. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to being able to come see your school when we can finally all travel. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be great. We'd love to have you. Thanks, Tanya. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.